0: I want to start with a um, question tonight, and uh, and it's an individual, it's a really personal question, but I think it's one that we need to ask ourselves um, if we if we want to come into this passage together. And the question is this: Do you know what it is to lament? Do you know? I mean, personally, what it is to lament? The idea of of a lament is something that a very passionate way that we express our sorrow or our grief. It is the overflow of a heart that is broken. Now, one way that historically lamentation has happened, lamenting has happened, has been at a time of great national tragedy. And honestly, if you were to look back at the history of the United States, even over the last just generation or so the true times when there has been those opportunities for lament have frankly been few and far between from a national sense. We think of things like September 11, 2001. We think of going back um, uh, a little bit farther in time. We think of the attack on Pearl Harbor. We think on these great national catastrophes. We think of the Challenger explosion and other things in which truly our nation lamented, but but from a national perspective, those days have been uh, perhaps few and far between, at least when compared to history. What about your own personal life? Can you think back to times when you have just been brought so low that the expression of your grief has been verbal and vocal lament of just a passionate outcry of grief and sorrow? Well, it is here that we come into the book of our Bibles that is entitled Lamentations Lamentations because it truly is a lament the author is Jeremiah it is written in just the late 500s BC Jerusalem has fallen in about 587 BC nearly 600 years before the time of Christ And there is a period of just unspeakable misery and tragedy that has fallen on God's covenant people of Israel. And Jeremiah, who is called the weeping prophet, even just for Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, as he expresses his... Sadness and sorrow over the, these tragedies that have befallen God's people. Now he is going to do a formal, right, a formal lament, a funeral dirge, a poem that expresses the great sadness of the people of God. Now, a lamentation like this, a funeral dirge, was not actually uncommon in the secular day of Jeremiah's age. This what would have been a a, a kind of vehicle that people would have been familiar with to express great mourning, express great sadness. And actually the form of lamentations is extremely poetic. You can actually see this if you were to just take a quick scan through the book. How many verses are in lamentations chapter one. Can anyone see. 22. How many are in Lamentations 2? 22. How many are in Lamentations 3? 66. How many are in Lamentations 4? 22. How many are in Lamentations 5? 22. Now you wonder, what is he getting at here? How many letters are there in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. Did you know in Lamentations 1 and Lamentations 2 and Lamentations 4? Every one of those verses begins with a different Hebrew letter in the order of the alphabet. It would be like he is taking 26 letters in the English alphabet. If you were to take one and go through each one, the first verse starts with A, the second verse starts with B, the third verse starts with C. It is literally an acrostic in the Hebrew. You say, what about chapter 3? gets really interesting. In chapter 3, there are 66 verses and each, there are, it's like there are three-verse couplets, 22, 22, and 22. There are 22-3-verse couplets. In chapter 3, all three of those couplets, of the triplets in each little section, starts with the same Hebrew letter. A, 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 verses 1 through 3. B, 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 verses 4 through 6. C, 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 if you were doing it in the English language. It is truly a work of poetry. Chapter 5 does not have that same structure in its 22 verses. It's not the same kind of acrostic, though there is nonetheless a, a distinct poetic form. Scholars suggest that this was done this way to aid memorization, that these were lamentations to be memorized, and it's easier to memorize if you know the first letter in which each verse is starting, and it is tracking the Hebrew alphabet. So here it's a very shapely, it's an exquisite poem, poem, it's a work of poetry, it's thoughtful, it's careful, and in it, Jeremiah is expressing the incredible suffering and sorrow that uh, has befallen the people of God. And yet, today, we looked at chapter 3 and particularly we saw when Calvin Todd got to some of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. Verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. These verses are at nearly the literal center of the book, They're not quite at the center, 22 and 22 verses in chapter in chapter uh, 1 and 2, 66 verses, 22 verses in 4, and 22 verses in 5. But these are very nearly at the center of this entire book, and they are the very underlying heart of hope that comes through this great chapter, this great book of lamentations. What I want to do tonight is we as we uh, discuss this book and give us just a brief overview of it, is to look at these famous verses, Your mercies fail not, great is thy faithfulness. These themes that come to us in that well-known hymn that was written off this passage. I want us to come in together, if we can tonight, the incredible tragedy in which this is being written. The true heart of lamentation that is underlying it and ultimately see if we can come ourselves into why there is such power in these verses. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The title of the message this evening is Mercies Amid Miseries. Mercies Amid Miseries. Tonight, if we take one thing away, I hope we take this. It is no matter the misery that you may experience, be experiencing in your life right now or that you may soon experience the mercies of the Lord amid even those great miseries are the anchors that will carry you through with joy and with hope and ultimately with a spirit of gratitude in who God is and what he has done for you. Let's start, if we can, just to understand the context here in what I'm going to call unspeakable miseries. Unspeakable miseries. Now, what is Jeremiah speaking of here in this wonderful piece of poetry? Go back to chapter 1, will you? Chapter 1 of Lamentations. First, we just see here a captured city. Notice verse 1. How does the city sit solitary, isolated, that was full of people? It was full of people, now it's empty. How is she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces? How is she become tributary? She's become like a slave. She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dwelt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwells among the heathen. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. This captured city, this is reflecting the great destruction that came on the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, and the city of Jerusalem, its capital city, when the Babylonians, at the prophecy of God, came in and utterly ransacked the city of Jerusalem. Burnt it, destroyed its temple, knocked it to the ground, and utterly ruined the city and its inhabitants. And we see here that the, the story that comes out of Lamentations over and over is that this was no accident. It was actually the hand of God that was behind it. Notice what he says here in verse 8 of chapter 1. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. Therefore she is removed all that honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sighs and turns backward. Her filthiness is in her skirt. She remembers not her last. And therefore she came down wonderfully, or if you will, kind of astonishingly. Turn over to chapter 2 and verse 1. How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger and cast down from heaven under the earth, the beauty of Israel. And remember, not the footstool, not his footstool on the day of his anger. Notice how Jeremiah is just pinpointing that this was God's doing. The Lord has swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devoureth round about. He says in verse 5 the Lord was as an enemy he has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds and hath increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. You just see Jeremiah is looking at this utter tragedy, this national tragedy, and he sees that it's God's hand, God's judgment that has done it. In fact, in chapter 1, there is in verse 12 another one of the most famous passages from this entire, uh, very somber lamentation. He says, speaking on behalf of Jerusalem, he says, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. That verse right there has been been, uh, put into poetry. You may have heard, the, the poem, O Vos Omnes, O Vos Omnes, it was put to music by a man named Thomas Luis de Vittoria in the late 1500s, one of the most beautiful choral works of, um, that, that I'm aware of. We studied, I, um, and, I, and I studied in our choral conducting. You should check it out. It's absolutely breathtaking. But here is this picture of this city sitting solitary and looking at all the people passing by on the road and says, look at me. Look at how sorrowful. Look at how broken we are as a people. And you see, ultimately this lamentation is reflecting on the utter suffering that befell it. And I just want us to see again if we can come into this suffering together for a moment that Jeremiah was seeing personally. Look at verse 20 of chapter two. He says, behold, O Lord, And consider to whom thou hast done this. Shall the women eat their fruit and children of a span, a span long? Imagine truly being in a situation where you have the prophet of God looking up to God and saying, God, really? The moms are eating the children? Really? Notice what he says. How shall the priest and the prophet be slain, be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? They're getting destroyed in the temple, God. Look at verse 21. The young and the old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men are fallen by the sword Thou was slain them in the day of thine anger, Thou hast killed and not pitied. You can try to bring yourself into this kind of national tragedy. If any of you are like me, you've maybe seen a documentary on the awful periods in human history like the Holocaust. And you've seen the, the video footage of people being rescued from concentration camps and you see the emaciated condition that they're in and the hollow eyes and just the incredible, the, the, the gray graves of dead bodies being exhumed. And you just say, oh Lord. You think of, of, of the suffering of those who are starving, the pictures of children who are literally wasting away with a lack of food and disease, and your heart just breaks. You say, God, have mercy. And this is what Jeremiah was seeing, friends, with his own eyes. When you look at, at, chapter, at chapter 4, look at what he says in, in verse 4. Of chapter 4, he says, The tongue of the sucking child cleaves to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask bread, and no man breaks it unto them. He goes on to say in verse 6, The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom. Why? Because that was overthrown just in a moment, and no hand stayed on her. It would be better to be destroyed in a moment than to see the utter tragedy that has come on us. You see, in verse 10, he says, goes on to say, the hands of the pitiful woman, that's the compassionate women. The hands of even the women full of compassion have sod and literally have cooked their own children. And you you just you just any of you who is a mother reading that to see Jeremiah saying it was the compassionate ones that were f- seemingly forced into this, that, that you can just feel the incredible. The discouragement, the incredible sorrow that Jeremiah is witnessing and communicating. And what does this result in? Go back to chapter 3. It results in a prophet who is utterly downcast, utterly broken at what he is seeing. Will you look with me in verse number 18? Now Jeremiah is speaking. Verse 1, he has said, I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. And now he says in verse 18, and I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. Now pause there for a moment. The wormwood and the gall. Some of you remember in that phrase is used in all hail the power of Jesus' name. That poet draws on that idea of the wormwood and the gall. But this is an Old Testament picture of just incredible suffering. There is a prophecy in the Old Old Testament that, 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 that there would even be this kind of gall that would be fed to God's people if they disobeyed him. Jeremiah, even in the book of Jeremiah, says, brings out the prophecy of God that he is feeding them gall and wormwood. And now he says, God, I've tasted it. I've tasted this bitter drink. My mouth is utterly full of it. And then in verse 20, he says, my soul has them still in remembrance. is just continually on my mind. And listen to what he says, and is humbled in me. Now that word humbled there isn't actually just what we think of as showing humility in a good sense. The idea is that his soul is utterly devastated. It's brought low. We would say in modern English, we would say he's depressed. I'm utterly depressed. I have these things continually on my mind, and I am discouraged and broken and utterly at my wit's end. And that's where I want to pause. Because it's at that point that Jeremiah, it's like a switch flips. And he says, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Now, can I just suggest... Each of us has gone through different miseries in our lives. And there are things that undoubtedly are causing you misery, perhaps even tonight. But can I say none of us has gone through misery like this? None of us has faced suffering like the people of God faced when Jerusalem was desolate. None of us, I trust, have seen the things that Jeremiah saw as the man of God face to face and gave This lament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, none of us. And that's why we see the unspeakable miseries that Jeremiah saw transforming into what he sees, secondly, of the unshakable mercies of God. The unshakable mercies. Will you see here with me in verse 21? This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. He says, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And I just want to focus on those three words. Your mercies, your compassions, your faithfulness. Start with compassions. The idea here of the word compassions is it literally comes from a word, a Hebrew word, that is the idea of a womb. What an interesting idea, right? The idea that God's compassions are like a womb in which we are protected, sheltered, like a mother's womb shelters and protects and gives comfort to her infant to her child? In the same way, Jeremiah is describing the kinds of compassions of God, like this protective womb, and he says those compassions fail not. They never end. They they will never run out. There will never be an empty tank of God's compassions. And He says they are new every morning. Every morning there is a new supply of the kindnesses, of the compassions, the care of God. And notice what he connects this to. He says it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. So he is connecting the kindness of God to the mercies of God. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed consumed you say Jeremiah aren't you already consumed look at Jerusalem look at the suffering look at the tragedy and Jeremiah says no it could be worse if it weren't if it weren't for the mercies of God we'd be utterly destroyed there wouldn't even be a remnant there wouldn't even be a promise for the future there wouldn't be any hope he says you got to understand it could be worse it is of the Lord's mercies now you probably already know this but I'll say it to you anyway. The word mercies here is one of the most important words in all of our Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word that you, that you would say Hesed. You've probably heard of this before. Hesed. What does it mean? The idea is more even than just what we think of mercy. One English writer in a in a in a, a, a translation before the King James Version just kind of created a new word, loving-kindness it has the idea of kindness it has the idea of love but it also has this it has the idea of a kind of steadfast loyalty in a, a loyalty that will never be broken an absolute fidelity and that's why it is connected in our bibles to god's covenants that he makes In fact, you often see this word in our Old Testament connected to covenant. You remember that? Maybe you've come across that phrase in reading in the Old Testament that God keeps covenant and mercy. He keeps covenant and chesed. Those two ideas being brought together that God keeps his covenant. This is his covenant-keeping love. His covenant-keeping kindness. God makes promises to man and he stands to them, he will not under any circumstances be done with them. Listen to Micah chapter 7, a prophecy, uh, 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 the words of the prophet in our Old Testament. Uh, He says, who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Chesed. He delights in this kind of steadfast love. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the hesed, the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. I want you to think about that for a moment. This is written after the destruction of Jerusalem. It's written when Jerusalem is there's only the of the Israelites, there's only a small remnant. Micah said, You're not gonna forget the Hesed that you promised to, to, to Abraham. You're not gonna forget the covenant that you promised to Jacob, God, because you you are full of steadfast love. You are a God of mercies, of loving kindnesses. Now, this is why the logic of the prophet is going to work itself out here. You say, how could he have any hope? He says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. What's his hope in? Not what he sees. All he sees is unspeakable misery and tragedy and destruction and grief. It's not what he sees. It's what he knows. What is that? He says, God, you're a chesed God. You're a long-suffering and loving-kindness, God. You're a covenant-keeping God. You say, what covenant did he have in mind? Friends, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God made through Moses was what? You follow my law and I'll bless you. And you don't follow my law and I'll curse you. And what were now the people of God experiencing The results of their disobedience. That's why he says in this book, he says, we've done it. We've brought this on ourselves. We are the ones who have sinned. You have justly brought this upon us. You did what you said you'd do. So how can Jeremiah now look and say, but God, I have hope because you're merciful. Because friends, the covenant of Moses was not the only covenant that God made with his people. We just read in Micah chapter 7 about a covenant he made with Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. All the ends of the earth are going to be blessed in you. And this land I'm going to give you and to your seed forever. He made promises. He made a covenant that continued on through Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob. He made a covenant to David. He said of your body, there's not going to lack someone to sit on the throne. I am not. I I am going to keep my covenant to David forever. And now the prophet is looking at the utter destruction of his land under the Mosaic covenant of God, and yet he still knows there's a covenant-keeping God who's not done with his people of Abraham yet, who's not done with his covenant to David yet, of a king who would come and reign on his throne. And therefore he can say confidently in the midst of unshakable, of, 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 of unspeakable misery and tragedy, can say, your, your mercies. Your mercies are enduring. It is your mercies that there's a remnant because you're not done with Abraham. You're not done with Jacob. You're not done with David. And therefore you're not done with us. You see the logic? He's a covenant keeping God. And therefore, that connects finally to his faithfulness. Verse 23, they are new. Your compassions based on your steadfast love, your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The idea here is just complete stability. It is complete fidelity, complete trustworthiness. You, God, are a covenant-keeping God who will always keep your word and do what you say. Now, what does this mean? Keep on reading now and see what this means for Jeremiah. Notice how his mood completely changes. He says, The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. Hope based on what? His character. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. To the soul that seeketh him, it is good, listen to this, that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Hope and quietly wait. You say, here's a man who's sitting down in unspeakable misery, and what does he know to do? He just said, God, you're a covenant-keeping God, and therefore I can just sit here and wait that you are going to deliver, that you are going to be faithful to your word, and that you're gonna keep the covenant that you promised. So God, I'm just gonna sit here, and I'm gonna hope, and I'm gonna wait. Friends, this this just blows me away. It just blows me away. This kind of faith in a covenant-keeping God that in the face of utterly unspeakable misery and tragedy stands on the unshakable mercies of God and says, deliverance is coming. Look at verse 31, will you? For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies same idea God's not done with us yet because he's promised now let me pause there for just a moment as we bring this to a close what does that mean for us you've never I trust experienced these kinds of unspeakable miseries and I hope you never do but there is an application to each one of us in the way that Jeremiah works through this logic about the character of God And it's going to be what I'm going to call, thirdly, an urgent mentality, an urgent mentality for any of us if we want to be rooted and grounded in the steadfast love of God and the hope that it gives us. Will you look with me back again in chapter 3 at verse number 20? He says of the wormwood and the gall, the misery that he is experiencing, he says, My soul hath them still in remembrance. I'm remembering them, and therefore my soul is humble to me. I'm depressed, I'm downcast, I'm full of misery. But then he said in verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. In other words, the great divide between his state of depression and despair and discouragement and his mindset of great hope and gratitude and joy is what's in his mind When his mind is set on the wormwood and the gall, the current miseries that he's under, he says, my soul is utterly downcast and depressed in me. And then he says, wait a second. But this is what I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. Friends, your and my experience in the miseries of life will be dependent on what I'm setting my mind on. When my mind is on what I'm experiencing in the moment... I will be discouraged and I will be depressed and I will be downcast. And when I choose, he says, this I recall, that's an active verb, I'm the one doing it. I recall to mind, therefore I have I hope. What am I recalling to mind? The Lord's steadfast covenant keeping mercies, the Lord's compassions that fail not and that are new every morning, the great faithfulness of God to me to be utterly true to his word, he says, where's your mind? And even in the midst of his unspeakable misery, he calls to mind the character of God. And he says, therefore, I have hope. And his whole mood, his whole outlook changes. And he's able to say with endurance, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord whenever it's his time. Now, friends, I can tell you that is an incredibly stabilizing truth if we'll allow it to be. And there's a time simply in our lives when we are struggling, when we are battling against just chewing on the wormwood in the gall, just chewing on, on the bitterness of life that we're experiencing right now where we just literally have to say, you know what, God, I'm just going to spit this out and I'm going to chew on something else. It's just simply as much as that. I can testify to this. Some of you may be a little bit like me. You can be a compulsive person. You can have compulsive thoughts. You can have uh, things that get in your mind and you can't quite get them out. There's a point in our lives when we are getting into that spiral of compulsive thinking that we literally, just by the grace of God, just have to say, No, I will not think about the wormwood and the gall anymore. I will not think about the miseries anymore. I will not think about what I'm seeing right now with my eyes of physical sight. I will turn my eyes of spiritual sight on the covenant-keeping character of God, and I will think and meditate on that. You have to make a choice, and until you make that choice, your soul will continue to be depressed and discouraged and downcast. It is as simple as... What are you remembering and what are you recalling to mind? Where are you choosing to set your mind? Do you know there's a wonderful story here behind the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness? The man who wrote this hymn was a man named Thomas Chisholm. Thomas Chisholm also wrote other hymns. He wrote, for example, Living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do. He wrote over a thousand poems. But the true life of Thomas Chisholm actually was a somewhat somber one. Thomas Chisholm was a man who came to faith. He had a, 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 a breakdown after the death of his mother. He was a man who desired after his salvation to become a minister. He became a Methodist minister for only a short period of time, about a year before poor health forced him out of the ministry. He tried to become an insurance agent. He tried to do anything he could to bring in income to support his family. He ultimately ended up in a nursing home. Uh, a methodist nursing home and there he ended his days dying in 1960 thomas chisholm and thomas chisholm testified he said my income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years which has followed me on until now although i must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. You know, Thomas Chisholm wrote that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and because of the hymn writer, a man named Mr. Runyon was connected to Moody Bible Institute. It got great currency at Moody Bible Institute until a young student heard it there at Wheaton College, a man named Billy Graham. And Billy Graham took that hymn and and had it sung in his crusades by a man named George Beverly Shea. And over the last 100 years, next year is the 100th year anniversary of Great is Thy Faithfulness. It was written in 1923. It has become one of the greatest and most famous of all Christian hymns because it speaks so powerfully exactly to this truth. Will we focus on the miseries that we are experiencing or will we focus on the unshakable mercies of a covenant-keeping God? There's just one more thing how are you going to know that the covenant-keeping God has a covenant with you? How can you rely on a covenant-keeping God? And to that, I would just simply say this. The same man who wrote this book of Lamentations, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, tells us that the days come, God says, in which I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Friends, do you know that if you are in Jesus today, you are experiencing the benefits of a new covenant that God has made with you. As his covenant person that he has committed to put by his Holy Spirit, his law in your hearts for him to be your God and for you to be his people. You see, the ultimate pointing forward of the book of Lamentations is to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Who, if you will, on the cross said, look at me all you who pass by and see if there be any sorrow like my sorrow. The one who took the wormwood and the gall of bitterness in the cup that God had given him to drink and drank all of it on the cross. Who took the greatest unspeakable miseries and tragedies upon his own life so that you would be able to come into the covenant with him. You see, we're about to go in to participate in the Lord's Supper tonight. And I would just remind you that when we take that cup together, we are going to read the words of Jesus when he said, this cup is the New Testament, literally the new covenant in my blood. This do it as often as he drinks. In remembrance of me. You see, every Sunday we come to take the Lord's Supper together, we have an opportunity to put our minds aside from whatever the miseries and whatever the difficulties that we're experiencing today when we came to church and focus on the, unsp- on the unshakable covenant-keeping mercy of God with the bread and with the cup that says, focus on this and you'll be stable this week. Focus on this and you'll have hope this week. Focus on this and you'll have joy and gratitude this week. Focus on who I am and what I've done for you. And you'll walk in joy and not in discouragement. And ultimately, that's where I'd like to leave us tonight. As we go ahead into a Thanksgiving season and ultimately into a Christmas season, there may be pangs, on each one of your hearts that you even would have a hard time bringing out into a lamentation. There may be empty homes where you wish they weren't empty. There may be different economic difficulties that you're facing right now, different relational struggles. And there's a lamentation, there's a dirge, there's misery on your heart. The simple point as we go into this Thanksgiving week is to say this. You can either choose to focus and chew on the wormwood and the gall Or you can choose to turn your eyes intentionally and as a matter of voluntary choice to the covenant-keeping mercies of God, his compassions that never fail, and his great faithfulness in the new covenant that he has made with you. And when you turn your eyes there, just like the prophet Jeremiah, you can have hope, you can have gratitude, and you can have joy no matter where God has placed you. Friends, The mercies of God are there amidst all the miseries, amidst all the tragedies, amidst all the sufferings that we're facing. May we fix our minds there and come in to the true hope in the covenant that he has made for us.